This is Diver, podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research. I'm your host, Federico Weitler, associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and board member of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Welcome, 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 welcome to our ninth episode of Dive In, a podcast about equity, diversity, and inclusion in special education research. Today in our episode, we're going to address a very important issue, an standing issue that researchers, teachers, school administrators, and parents had been trying to address for uh, several decades. Did you know that 12% of the students receiving special education services. That means those receiving services under the Individuals with Disability Education Act are emerging bilinguals. Those are students who come to our schools with uh, linguistic repertoires and assets who, that do not match those that uh, schools tend to uh, privilege and use for instruction. There's been many uh, issues outstanding with emerging bilingual students with disabilities. And some of them has been, do we prioritize special education services that may not acknowledge the strength and linguistic assets of the students? Or then may, we may uh, uh, prioritize uh, bilingual services who may not uh, provide maybe the supports and needs that these students uh, require. So to talk about all these important issues, we're going to have an interview with Patricia Martinez Alvarez, which is an associate professor um, at Teachers College. Uh, we're going to talk about also her uh, new book titled uh, Teaching Emerging Bilingual Students with Disabilities. So I hope you stay tuned, you join the interview, and learn a lot. Bienvenida, Patricia. Uh, dive in. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Very exciting to be in this space with you. Yeah, we're we're very excited to have you, and it's very uh, it's very interesting because I am where you were born, and you are where I was for like twenty years. Uh, so we kind of like are kind of switching spots for this interview. I know. Yes, that's true. Um. So um, I'm going to start with some questions. I I want to say I love your book. Uh, your new book that came out with uh, Teachers College Press, Teaching Emerging Bilingual Students with Disabilities, uh, Humanizing Pedagogies to Engage learning, Learners and emulate, uh, Eliminate Labels. Um, so I have a few questions about, about kind of the work that you've been doing, but I, I want to start with a much broader question. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, most of your work has been with bilingual students with disabilities and training teachers uh, to work with bilingual students with disabilities. So so, so can you tell us what are the most pressing equity issues you see for bilingual students with disabilities? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you, Federico. What an important question to entertain. As you um, mentioned, my work has always been with children who are um, bilingual learners or emergent bilinguals and also have been labeled as having a disability. And most of the children that I work with are of immigrant backgrounds. So I'm very passionate about working with these communities. And there are many different pressing issues that I would mention in relation to addressing the inequities that we see in a school. But maybe I will highlight 
two important ones that are probably very familiar to our audience. One is the issue of disability identification disproportionality and the consequences of labels that we see in schools. So as we know, while bilinguals have many, they possess linguistic and cultural resources that can indeed be assets for learning, immigrant children have historically been situated as not doing well in, in public schools. And so this deficit perspective arises, I think, from the use of measurements, ways of looking at what learning is and how to measure that, that don't recognize the knowledge that these children possess. And also from the lack of culturally, linguistically relevant ways of teaching bilingual children in our public schools. So you know, we need to change the way we expect children to perform while learning and try to improve the ways we collect and analyze the work uh, that children generate in schools, the conversation samples that we have from children, right? How we interpret the ways bilingual children speak from a translanguaging lens. Um, we know that distinguishing emerging bilingual children who should be receiving special education services is very complex, especially along some of the categories, the disability categories that are recognized under the special education law, that they're more subjective in a way we kind of human beings um, recognize, label these, these disabilities in schools, and they less visible, right? Um, so we have some sens sensory-based disabilities that are more obvious, but when we have to decide when a child has a specific learning disability, which is based on processing, we don't have very good tools or speech and language impairment. Why do, when do children need services for speech and language impairment? These are the soft categories, disabilities, and that's where I see that we just don't have very good tools to distinguish an emerging bilingual child who's learning the language and utilizing their linguistic and cultural resources in schools versus children who might need more services in that. And the National Research Council Committee on Minority Representation in Special Education reported recently numerous cases of minorities, not only bilingual learners, but also with African-American communities in the United States that are being misidentified with this disability that are connected to language, to culture, different ways of speaking and of functioning in classrooms. So that's one of the main issues, aspects that we need to address. Um, the second one that I would like to mention is the lack of opportunities that bilingual children have to continue to grow that bilingualism and also, you know, become biliterate learners. Um, so findings show that emerging bilinguals have fewer opportunities than their peers uh, that don't have a disability to, to learn in bilingual programs when they have that disability. So as bilingual learners are identified with disability, they are not allowed to continue to learn bilingually. And this, of course, is not um, being done purposefully, but there are different aspects in bilingual education that are just not so welcoming to children with disabilities. So you know, this is yeah, something... Yeah, because the system tries, or IEPs, mm -hmm. IEP teams, or, or 
uh, schools try to prioritize special education services over uh, services that could promote or sustain bilingualism, right? Right. That can be one of the aspects is that um, maybe the student has to leave the bilingual program to access bilingual special education services, right? So they are forced to prioritize one identity over the other of growing uh, their bilingualism. But it can also be that um, there there are misconceptions about bilingual children with disabilities and how they can learn in multiple languages, that maybe learning in two languages might present difficulties, additional difficulties for these children. And this is despite the amount of research that is growing that shows that um, not only bilingual education is very beneficial for bilingual children and for every child, but also that children with a disability, they can learn bilingually. And, and that is not to a disadvantage to their, to their learning or to their development. Do you think that has some, I mean, is this related that we have such a separated fields? Like we have special education, we have bilingual education, and with mm-hmm. little connection, like we have these silos that are represented in the schools. Uh, in the in the sense of uh, special education teachers, you know, bilingual teachers, etc., that may that may uh, be an obstacle for uh, emerging bilinguals to disability to be able to to receive bilingual education. Yes, for sure, uh, Federico. I think that this is a very important point that you're making. I think that we uh, don't have more inclusive bilingual programs where children can continue to stay there even if they need disability-related services because we might not have experts, we don't have the teachers that are certified to teach children across these different forms of difference. So that that is another um, issue that I'd like to highlight, the need to have more teachers that are certified across fields and that understand you know, the assets that bilingual children bring to school, they know how to teach children from a culturally and asset-based perspective, culturally relevant this, uh, pedagogies, but also that understand the way that we can provide different ways of accessing content and thinking in schools. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. And, and it feels to me that definitely we need to have more of those professionals and teachers with these, these uh, cross-expertise, uh, but also we should have more people doing research uh, on how to do this, right? Because it seems that we are also in a special education lacking, uh, and, and I may be wrong on this, but it seems to me that we're lacking a robust body of knowledge of how to provide bilingual education to students with disabilities. Exactly, yes. And the body of research is, is already growing, but we need um, more researchers that look at the um, at multilingual children to the full extent of the complexity, right? We know that multilingual children bring a lot of diversity into schools and that we might embrace different identities while in schools. And so, you know, I know that it's it's difficult to address these different forms of being in schools, but that is what we've seen, that in our classrooms, children learn in different ways and that instead of situating children from deficit views, we should just try to learn from them and and find out how we can create a context that works for these children in multiple ways. So, so, I mean, my follow-up question, I mean, you you were born and raised in Spain, right? Uh, I was born and raised in Argentina. I'm living currently in Spain. And and when you look at from outside, 
you really start thinking about why is in the U.S. there is such a resistance to bilingual education in the U.S. in general, right? Mm-hmm. I'm here. My my children are are learning in Spanish, in English, and even in Basque, right? Like in three languages. And people is you know it's a source of pride here for schools. We are are trilingual schools, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow in the U.S. we have such a, a different uh, approach to to language. Mm-hmm. Yes, unfortunately, I think we have a legacy of racism of. Um, you know, maybe thinking that bringing in and welcoming multiple languages and cultures might somehow harm the um, the idea of a nation and creating a you know a unique identity um, as a country and uh, promoting ways of learning that that have certain ways of thinking. Um, I think that the the resistance is mostly with immigrant children for sure. Um, mm. Bilingualism is is very well received and welcome for our English-speaking children to other languages in the schools, although, of course, there's also a little bit of resistance to that. But where I see most of the resistance is with immigrants maintaining their own language and learning to their multiple languages, which is such a waste, right? Because then we're trying to push these languages that the children already have when they come into our educational institutions out of them uh, have them assimilate into an English-only world and monocultural space. And then later on, we invest all this money in trying to get those languages back. So why not address those from the beginning in a bilingual context? Yeah, that's such a great, great and important point. Um, so I want to I turn a little bit about your book, Teaching Emerging Bilingual Students with Disabilities. Uh, and I want to ask a question about, you. you speak there about a humanizing pedagogy for emerging bilingual with students. Can can you tell us what is this about a humanizing pedagogy? Yes, yes, centering the human being, right? I mean, over the year, historically, we've had so many different takes on humanistic perspectives, right? From Kant's classical humanism, where education was proposed as a way to help individuals in achieving what's civically good. Do we, speaking about the naturalistic approach where schools should be the child's habitat, um, the embryonic communities that we need to create in schools. But I, I come more from the perspective in bilingual education where humanizing pedagogies uh, and, and also in inclusive education, it's rooted on uh, Paul Freire's critical radical approach. And the field of bilingual education and also in critical disability studies, where disability is seen more as a socially construct, uh, a social construct, there is an emphasis for, you know, thinking about um, tools to break away from the assimilationist trends in schools that we were discussing, right, especially when working with children who are from immigrant background and are othered in schools, even though they might be, they might have been born in the United States and their families have been here for generations, they are still situated as the other outside of the system. And this is a way of dehumanizing um, hmm. these families and these communities. And there are policies and practices that situate them in this way and promotes negative attitudes toward immigrant learners or, or children with immigrant backgrounds. So in bilingual education research and 
and in more recent work in, in critical disability studies, as you know, Federico, from your work, humanizing pedagogies are inspired by Paulo Freire's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and he proposes this process of rehumanization in pedagogy that You know, I, I really agree that uh, it's it's really the only effective instrument that we can use in schools with our bilingual communities. It's establishing a permanent relationship of dialogue, well, where um, you know teachers are not um, controlling the students. Right, we are working on the consciousness of the students, so they are aware of the oppression that they are. Um, experiencing in the schools. We are validating and integrating children's interests, including their disability, right? Their way of learning that we consider to be a disability, but it's their way of learning. The fans of knowledge that they bring, all the work by Louis Moll and many other researchers, um, prioritizing the trusting relationships that we want to see in the schools, bringing multicultural Literature, Maria Franquiz and her colleagues have done a lot of work in this, right? Engaging students in, in reflecting, in, in active learning so that they can understand the world they're experiencing and try to transform it, right? So humanization involves active learning and agency, I would say. Um, trust in our students in that they have creative power, that they are great learners, And, uh, and and the teachers, alongside their students, maybe occupying more vulnerable positions where we, we're not the sole experts, right? We're there yeah. learning side by side. We have a lot to learn from, our, from the children. We don't know about all the knowledge that they've acquired over their lives until they get to us. And it's a lot of, of knowledge. Um, and Teresa Huerta speaks a lot about, um, you know, her research talks about the attitudes and dispositions of teachers. She works with urban elementary school teachers um, who that Latino parents see as very effective in working with their children. And, and she explains how, you know, the, the teachers had sociocultural knowledge and they used it to build relationship with their students. This is so important in humanizing pedagogy, right? Creating instructional practices that are based on the specific students' realities, their histories, their perspectives, so that they connect. It's really, um, you know, I think it's creating that hybrid approach right, where it's mm. not on standard curriculum, which, yes, we want to give all our children access to the standard curriculum, yeah. the ways of thinking in, in specific spaces so that they have more uh, possibilities in the future, but also integrating that with the ways of uh, knowing in the world and the practices they experience. That's, that's fascinating. So, you know, this uh, humanistic approach, it's, it's, it's very interesting, but I'm also thinking about more traditional approaches, special education, you know, interventions, one-on-one -on -one intensive mm -hmm. instruction. So do you see this humanizing pedagogy, this humanizing approach for emerging bilingual students with disability uh, compatible with these more traditional forms of intervention for students with disabilities? That's a very good question, Federico, and it's a fair question, right? Because we work with the students, I'm in a schools a lot, 
And yes, I want to continue to foster this utopia and moving forward toward this uh, futuristic view in education. But we also have to work with the system that we have now, right? In general, uh, when I hear the word intervention, I think about remedial uh, approaches, remediation, right? And even the language used to describe children who are members of minoritized communities currently in in special education and in schools or those who have disabilities. Um, since because I mean, this is because the ways of teaching and learning in schools do not privilege their ways of learning, right? Or their own practical ways of getting to know. And that's why we label children with a disability. But the language we use in educational institutions is very focused on fixing and removing something children have that is perceived as maybe hampering learning. Um, however, you know, I, I feel that we need to, and Maria del Carmen Salazar from the University of Denver explains this as um, the need to humanize the lexicon that leaders academic spaces. And it's often presented through the discourse of whiteness, right? The way we, we see um, the monolingual child as the average and the common thing to have in a classroom and anything um, different from that. So, um, you know, I think we need to humanize research in ways that privilege the co-construction of knowledge, human agency and voice, as I was um, mentioning. And yes, a humanizing pedagogy can be compatible with more traditional forms of intervention if we learn to situate ourselves as learner, as learners alongside the communities we serve so mm. that we can continue to, you know, in that one-on-one, -on -one, continue to recognize what's already taking place in front of us in the classroom and that we often dismiss as maybe not worth uh, to be centered from an academic perspective or not important for learning, right? So incentivize the formation of those hybrid spaces, those spaces that allow for the hybridity of language, children translanguaging, right? Across mm -hmm resources across modes, children that draw on, or create with clay to make meaning, different knowledges that might be unfamiliar to us as teachers, as educators, and name and value the assets of the children, having that dialectical conversation that Freire calls us to bring to the class, right? Um, treating each other's knowledge and ways of being in the world with respect. So... You know, and, and, and working in my mm -hmm. after schools, I've had after schools programs in the schools for many years now. And um, I had one one project for four years that was called The Varied Ways of Knowing. And I built on that in my recent book. And I talk about uh, how hybridity and humanizing pedagogies surfaced simultaneously. And I think that this, this that I refer to as hybrid humanizing pedagogical moments, I think they're happening in the schools, but sometimes we miss them. We don't, we don't pay attention to them. We dismiss mm -hmm. these moments when children's knowledge and assets are validated, are integrated uh, fluidly in the classroom. And they, the, the educator and the children, they learn and have moments uh, that are hybrid in terms of knowledge or languages, but mm -hmm. are so humanizing for the children. So, so you know, children revealing information, etc. Go ahead. So there are moments in where teachers' knowledge or teacher expertise 
uh, uh, intersects with students' funds of knowledge or or cultural repertoires. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Yes, and also. You know, um, for instance, we had a girl, Cynthia, and I talk about that in, I wrote about that in the book, this example. And one of the teacher candidates uh, from a Dominican background, she was working with, with Cynthia, with this girl, and they were thinking about um, capturing learning powers that Cynthia had. And these were children who were bilingual and also had disabilities. So they didn't think about uh, powers in a school very often. And so we centered this, her knowledge, her strengths. And Cynthia hesitated and she didn't know how to start. But the teacher candidate from the after school is, is spoke about her own powers. And she mentioned, for instance, the power of learning to take care of her dog, who was you know, something that took, took place outside of the school. And through these examples and this modeling, Cynthia realized that it was not only academic within the school, but that something outside of the school was also welcomed. And mm. she many ideas, like, you know, being lovable was one of the things she mentioned as one of her powers, being a good friend. Other children also contributed. They said, you know, you're very good at painting and, and drawing. So she added, you know, playing with her grandmothers, added all these powers that she brought. And that you know, she generated these powers when the pressure to solely focus on identifying with the academics in the traditional sense was released. So it's also the effort of the teacher candidate to say to let go a little bit of it's not only what's, you know, math is my power and I'm going to be an engineer, but also can we entertain other things that are as valuable and important for the children, um, right? And, and and these, you know, just valuing the important work. And sometimes it's not a product. It's, you know, the creations that children make might look meaningless at the beginning, at first sight. Yeah. Oftentimes teacher candidates would say, you know, the child was not following instructions or they're not engaging in the learning invitation we provided. But if we take the time to listen to the child's interpretation of their work, we realize that they are the experts in their work. And they uh, give it meaning, and there's a lot of learning. And sometimes the narrative is created on the go, right? We together creating this narrative that is very valuable, and, mm. and that's learning in the go, in the process. So focusing more on learning from students, I would yeah. say. And what they bring, I imagine, I'm thinking also the the work of Carol Lee and and cultural mm -hmm. modeling, right? How they the skills that they may already have from the daily practices maybe the starting skills to engage in an academic practice. Yes, uh, exactly. And, you know, we've done a lot of work with science and we send mm -hmm. the children home to document science in their lives. And children bring photographs of uh, their dad fixing the lamp or their mother cutting vegetables, but doing it, you know, it's, it's a very mundane activity, but doing it in such an following an expert process that that has been learned over generations. And then the children can interview the family and learn about how that was learned and how that passed from the grandmother to the mother and now to the child. Right. And maintaining, revitalizing that knowledge or, you know, different practices that we embrace at home to cure ailments um, mm -hmm. like Having a boiled egg on a bruise to make it better, there's science behind this. And it's raising that to the level of, of sophisticated learning and practices and exploring what we can bring into the school with that. 
that that's fascinating. You know, and I, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the role of the teacher candidate on that vignette, because I mean that's probably one of the an important piece on this. So so one of my follow up questions is. Uh, this this very important work you have done. What are the implications of this work for uh, preparing teachers uh, to work with emerging bilingual students with disabilities? Mm-hmm. That's um, yes, that's a great right because a, a great question. I work with teachers a lot, and part of my research of one of my research lines is preparing teachers. And, you know, one of the things is spend time with the children and the communities in the school, explore the community around the school. Sometimes I feel that teacher candidates might be afraid or they're less familiar with the communities around the schools that have so many resources for learning. Um, I, I also think that, you know, consider instead of remediating right away and trying to give children what we perceive they don't have, maybe developing what they already have. So um, when we're developing children's biliteracy in a bilingual school, what are the strategies that they are using already? Um, So not just this remediation approach, trying to substitute existing strategies, but recognizing the ones that children are already using and valuing, fostering them, having other children try them out. And this might involve, for instance, a child who's looking at the work from another friend or um, a student who's asking others about how to get started with the task. These mm-hmm. are uh, agentic actions, right? These are volitional actions. They're not copying or they're not um, getting distracted, but these might be processes that the child needs to learn. So allowing the children to take action so that they become better learners and as understanding, you know, Anne Edwards talks about this as relational agency when we discover and it's a skill right we discover that others can support our learning and so the children would use those as resources so seeing every action that the child takes from a more asset-based perspective Mm. and well of course the other big implication we mentioned earlier Federico and is that there is a need to prepare educators that attend to the different aspects that bilingual children um, experience in the schools, right? So purposefully attending to the linguistic and cultural needs is very, is a bilingual education. In special education, teachers are learning to attend to diversity in terms of disability, and they specialize in attending to individual needs, the ways of learning that don't represent the average student, right? But we need to utilize the artifacts from those of these fields to prepare teachers to better serve these the students, are the students we have in the schools, right? So special education teachers, understanding about second language learning, bilingual education frameworks, but also bilingual learner, bilingual teachers learning about uh, some ways to attend to other ways of learning in the class. Mm. It seems, yeah, that, they, that, that silos that also are representative in uh college of education that prepares teachers they need to they need to be broken right we need to break those walls and, yes, uh, and ability and yes there are very few programs that do this in the united states in our institutions of higher education that address these overlapping forms of difference in a meaningful way that is integrated right because yeah. we have to help the teachers make sense of the various paradigms that this comes from like For instance, in special education, um, 
sometimes we might recommend simplifying or structuring language input in a certain way, right? But in bilingual education, we might uh, foster holistic linguistic approaches, uh, fluently employing the instructional languages, just speaking, right, as you're teaching. So try working with the teachers in authentic spaces so that they can make sense of this alongside ourselves, right? These are learning experiences for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to end up with two questions that I ask all uh, my uh, guests in, in this, uh, in dive in. Um, the first one is, um, what three pieces of advice do you have for special education scholars who wants to foreground equity and justice in their research? Mm -hmm. I would say take a participatory approach to research, right? Listen and learn from communities while recognizing what's there already. Mm -hmm. um, also trust children similarly in guiding their own learning. As I said, you know, just um, recognize that what they're doing has a purpose. Explore how children will draw. You know, we may have artifacts available, right? But the children have some agency to decide what they will use to mediate their own learning because we know that no one artifact works perfectly to mediate anyone's learning. So we have to give them agency and they will make good decisions and we learn from those. Um, and also, I would center research, and I try to do this always in, in any educational context that I'm in, is centering, focusing on the spaces in between. Hmm. Rajala, uh, Michael Cole, and Esteban Guitar wrote a recent article on utopian methodologies, and they talk about the need to domesticate our uh, ultimate motive, like the reason why we are in schools, right? Um, but also resisting that um, domestication in a way. So when I'm in schools, I work with the with the administration, with the in-service teachers um, to also understand what they need from the the many pressures that they have in their systems, right? Um, and these are very real. So we try to, in a way, domesticate our uh, expectations and our and our motives a little bit, but also resisting it and bringing some of our theoretical frameworks and fostering these. Okay, let's build on the fans of knowledge of the children and finding a way to do that. Yeah. So, so let me see if I, I can uh, um, synthesize that that uh, advice. Participatory teachers so bring communities into the research projects, bring students into the research projects. Uh, and uh, the second one you mentioned, I think, was to to work within the, the funds of knowledge and cultural repertoires that students have as part mm -hmm. of the basis for, for the, the research. Yes, and, you know, continue to focus on the spaces in between that might be less comfortable for us, right? If we are in a laboratory setting or uh, outside of the schools, and we're just doing our own thing and we do a randomized control treatment. And, and that that is a very, you know, it's a very different context. And if we just work with our communities and our research process, it's like design-based research approaches where we we change the research as we go by adapting to what's needed in the space where we are doing our work. Very interesting. Can you recommend one reading that you will do to someone who's doing this work? 
that of course is not your book something but <laughs> yes yes for sure i think you can that... recommend your book you can recommend you i'm just <laughs> just joking yes um but also I, i would recommend you know for um anyone that is is working with bilingual children with and without disabilities to read the soledad children the fight to mm. end discriminatory iq tests mm. uh, This was written by Marty Glick and Maurice Jourdain, and they are two attorneys, and they led um, the charge against the um, unjust denial of an education to Mexican-American youth in California. Mm. Uh, these were children uh, that came from families that worked in farm uh, labor camps yeah. in Soledad, California. This was in, back in the 70s. And what was happening is that the children were given IQ tests in English and they were placed in classrooms for cognitively impaired children and they were their opportunities for learning was very limited. And they were all Mexican-American children um, and other minorities, also African-Americans, had this issue, right? And and that so they it describes the Diana versus State of California yeah, yeah. Um, Board of Education. Uh, low case in, in 1970. And then out of that came Larry P versus Riles. Yeah. Everything is connected. So when we learn about one, like making connections, uh, right then the in 1975, we had the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, mm -hmm. now the Individuals with Disability Act, IDEA, that protects students with disabilities and their families, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking about this because it's the 50-year anniversary of Lau versus Nichols, mm. which focused on uh, multilingual children of Chinese background, right? And the lack of opportunities. So how as we remove children from these very restrictive classrooms where they couldn't learn, they were placed in the classrooms, but then we have to do something, right? To It's not just letting them uh, in the, and be in the classroom and we're teaching all in English and they don't have access to meaning making or uh, to learning the language because it's not being made comprehensible for them. So I think this book really sets the stage, stage for understanding this historical trajectory that I think is very, very important for any educator or researcher. Yeah, thank you for that recommendation. I actually added to my list because it's going to be very handy for a project that I'm doing, actually. So thanks for that recommendation. Uh, our last question is, Where would you like to see special education research in five years in terms of equity, diversity, and inclusion? Hmm. I would say I hope to see more respectful spaces, um, spaces where there's sophisticated learning opportunities for all children within high-quality bilingual programs, so dual-language programs where we are not preparing children to move to English-only spaces, right? We are there to foster and maintain the bilingualism of the children throughout their entire academic lives uh, so that they grow up as biliterate individuals that can use, they can successfully move across these linguistic spaces. I hope to see, you know, and, and it's in the title of my book, um, Humanizing Pedagogies to Engage Learners and Eliminate Labels. And that is kind of a, my utopia goal is 
that the need to label children to give them what they need in schools is softened, if not completely removed. That we see our children and we feel that they need something different and we make the change right there and we don't have to go through a very complex eligibility process and giving them an individualized education plan that most often than not for our minoritized learners, um, they create more exclusion than, than improving their opportunities. We need more community members and family members in the schools contributing to the learning experience, especially after the pandemic. I feel that um, mm. we would um, the school communities don't feel um, welcoming for us as parents. And I speak as a oh. mother here, right? So, you know, um, unless remedial, uh, remedial spaces in school, more focused on uncovering the assets and resources, like how the context can be designed to dream for or better, uh, more respectful spaces. Sorry, I thought I, that well, that was a long answer. But oh, that's good. I mean, they're all good things. I hope. I hope uh, 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 they they become a reality. Well, thank you so much, Patricia, for being our show. It has been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you so yeah. much, Rico. Thank you for listening to our episode. I hope you learned as much from the interview as I did. This episode was produced by me, Federico Vaitoller, Tasia Gonzalez, and Haya Abdelatif. Please, if you like this the podcast, subscribe and please tell your friends about it. See you next time.